1 Corinthians chapter 1, picking it up in verse 20. But now, let me just give a bit of a review from last week, because last week, what we're seeing happening here is Paul is contending with and addressing the church at Corinth that were going through some issues, some problems, some said they were dealing with dissensions, division, disputes that were happening in the church. And it was all centering around certain individuals that they were holding up. They were drawing party lines. And so there were some in the church at Corinth that were saying, we follow Paul. We're in the Paul party because he's the guy that founded the church of Corinth. He's the guy that brought the gospel to us here. That's the right person that we should be aligning with. But then others in the church said, no, 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 we're the Apollos party. He came also preaching the gospel in Corinth and he was eloquent. He was mighty in scriptures, the Bible tells us. So people said, oh yeah, we are all about Apollos. He kind of lines up with sort of our intellectual, philosophical kind of thinking. We like Apollos. Some said, yeah, yeah, you guys both got it wrong. We're the Peter party. He's one of the original apostles. He's the guy that we should, he's the closest link to Jesus. He's the one that we want to align with. And then others said, no, sorry, you've all got it wrong. We're the real spiritual elite because we're of the Christ party. But here's the problem is Paul's calling them all out because they were holding up men. And not only were they elevating and glorying in men, but they were also glorying in themselves, feeling like they had the right one that they were following and they were better off than everybody else was. And so it was bringing divisions and disputes. Paul comes in now and he's writing to this church and he's, he's correcting them in these things, but he's also saying, I didn't come trying to bring about some following or gathering of people. I was not here to kind of make something about me. In fact, he says in verse 17, if you want to pick it up there with me, just to give us a bit of a, a running start into where we start here. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So Paul says, I was not here trying to make something about myself. I didn't come with some kind of fanciful demonstration of how great I was. I wasn't coming with wise, persuasive words. I didn't want anything to take away from the cross of Christ. That was the, the focus of the message, the good news. It all centered around what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. So he says there in verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So Paul says, though I came preaching the cross, man, that was like foolishness to some who are perishing. And so today we're, we're going to be talking about the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. Or you could even say the foolishness of the world versus the foolishness of God. Now you go, wait a second, nothing that God does is foolish. No, you're right. I agree. But what God does oftentimes comes across to the world as foolishness. Just like Paul says the cross was to many. It appeared as foolishness. We're going to get into all that as we look at the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. We're going to see the response to godly wisdom and then also the reason for godly wisdom. The response of godly wisdom, as we'll see in these next few verses, and then verses 26 to 31, the reason for godly wisdom. So Paul says here in verse 20, where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Now, 
Paul's most likely alluding to and referencing a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 19, verse 12, where the context was the Assyrian army coming against Israel and just kind of breathing in threats to Israel. Israel's getting a little alarmed, a little freaked out. Instead of turning to the Lord and calling out to God for help, which is the obvious solution, they went to Egypt. Looking at Egypt as the great world power of that day, they're thinking, we can maybe find some kind of alliance and help and support from Egypt. And so now in Isaiah 19, this prophecy is being given of God's judgment against Egypt, of God coming down against Egypt. And, and that, that verse in Isaiah 19, 12 is essentially saying the same thing. Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. Where, where are your wise men? What good are your guys going to do in helping Israel when I'm the one that's leading and in control of all these things? And Paul is taking his cue now from these Old Testament prophecies and passages, and he now calls out in his day, in his age too, the wise, the scribe, and the disputer. Now, the wise would speak of the Greek philosophers that were in Corinth, and they were many. Remember, Corinth was kind of a, a populous city, a major trade route ran through it. So it, it just brought people of all sorts in. And Greek philosophers were definitely a part of the culture in Corinth. And they were known for their ability to grasp the deep wonders of the world. They were the wise. But then you've also got the scribes. And this was looking at and speaking of the Jewish scholar that was trained in the Mosaic law. In these Old Testament scriptures, oftentimes in the gospels, they were referred to as lawyers because they were the ones that were able to rightly carry out God's word and handle rightly God's word here. And so the scribes are speaking of these ones, these Jewish scholars, knowing the word of God. The disputer was also referenced to those that were debating a lot, mostly again referring to the Greek philosophers who spoke convincingly and were able to argue or make arguments with logic and wisdom and rhetoric. And so we're dealing with these three kinds of groups of people that oftentimes people will hold up on a pedestal and say, hey, if you want to look for answers, you want to be having some guidance in your life, here's who we've got. And, and, and we see them being upheld on, placed on these pedestals as though they've got all the answers to our problems or questions. These were the intellectuals that appeared as though they had it all together, but their wisdom as Paul is pointing out, is a worldly wisdom. And next to God and his wisdom, it comes across as foolish. Whatever the world holds up and says, oh, we've got all together. Next to God, it just becomes foolishness. Hey, listen, these days that we live in, as people move themselves, it seems more and more further away from God, do you not witness the wisdom of this world becoming more and more foolish when we can't define, you know, what a woman is, right? We see the wisdom of this world just getting absolutely more astounding and, and ridiculous to where there's just this futility of the world's wisdom or, or, or futility of scientific observation. We're just following the science, right? And it's not just the futility of it, it it's more the stupidity of it. And, and we've seen that all the more, haven't we, with the handling of COVID, the very arbitrary decisions that are made from the so-called scientists, just follow the science 
And, and yes, the science also says that men can have babies. This is the kind of stuff that you hear happening and being uh, uh, you know, espoused from the world that you go, this is madness, it's, it's foolishness. We see the foolishness of, of the world's wisdom in, in saying, no, there's not a creator of the world. Everything came about through evolution. Just evolution, that's it. And, and, and the way that they try to theorize and explain these things away, you go, it's absolutely ridiculous the things that get made up to try to explain what is so evidently here by a masterful designer, our God, the creator of it all. Chuck Smith says this, do you know how it is that you can see? You say, well, God created our eyes, the optic nerve, and yes, you would be right, he did. They're able to take 18 impressions per second. They're able to project them into this vitreous kind of a jelly that creates vibrations, goes up in your brain, and you got this sense of movement and all because of the 18 frames per second that are coming into the brain, just as God designed it. You can discern through that the, the colors, and you can see it's a brilliant design of infinite wisdom by a great creator. You can you, you can see these eyes that are set in their sockets with these little movements around them to causing to go back and forth, they track together. Now, those who say that there is no God, that man is the result of millions upon millions of years of fortuitous occurrences of accidental circumstances. They try to explain away now the intricacies, the incredible design of the eye by saying, you know how you got your eyes? Well, one day when the worm emerged out of the ooze and came into the sunlight, it developed a freckle on the top of, the, of its front part. It wasn't yet a head, and through mutations, that freckle gradually over a long period of time mutated into an eye, scraping across the coral and the barnacles and all. It created abrasions on the lower part that turned into sorts of warts or calluses that ultimately became legs. And then the salamander was able now to see and walk. That's how some will try to explain away the incredible design of the eye that, that shouts out, this cannot be by random chance. So Paul says, where is the wise? Where are they? Because we don't hear it in the world and in the things that they espouse. Chuck Smith says, I don't read comic books anymore. I just read evolution books. <laughs> Pretty much fulfills the same thing. So against the obvious foolishness that gets passed off for wisdom in this world, Paul calls out, where's the wise? Because when they begin to try and explain away the things of God by some random fairy tale explanation and pass it off as logical, scientific, and wise, then it only reveals the foolishness in greater ways. It's what Paul addressed in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, saying, because Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. But they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Here's what Paul is addressing. Is that, and, and, and interestingly in Romans 1 is a fascinating passage of seeing just kind of the, the depravity of man. Paul's writing that from Corinth and, and he's seeing there in Corinth just this black backdrop uh, of sinfulness, of futility as he's writing to the Romans there. Nevertheless, as people move 
further and further away from God to become futile in their minds and their thinking. Professing to be wise, they actually reveal themselves all the more foolish. Paul goes on to say in verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. See, no matter how intellectual you become, no matter how much studying you've done or, or theories learned, it doesn't bring you in a closer realization or understanding of God. Your wisdom, you see, does not lead you to salvation. Your wisdom, your intellect does not lead you into all that God has for you. In fact, it seems it's the agenda, right, of universities, places of higher education to attempt to snuff out the credibility of God. Many people have had their faith just shipwrecked, flipped upside down by the inaccuracies and lies of professors looking to simply assault Christianity. Sadly, that is happening even more so now in, in seminaries as professors seek to kind of discredit the inerrancy of God and his word. Make it more about fables and allegory and seek to bring about just the reality of, of God's word. And so people are seeing that we can have people filled with wisdom, so-called wisdom or scholarly wisdom and yet not lead people closer into the things of God. Now, that's not to say that there's no value in wisdom at all. We can certainly know things about God through observation of our world and, and this creation, just like Paul did in, in Romans 1, says that people are without excuse based on the things that we see all around us in this world, crying out with the evidence of a creator. But our human wisdom will never be adequate enough to bring us into the fullness of life that God has for us. This is what kind of Paul is pointing at here. God rather, look at what he says at the end of verse 21. Paul says, it, it rather pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now it's not preaching foolishness. This gets passed off in some pulpits perhaps today. It's not preaching foolishness. It's the foolishness of preaching and more so the foolishness of preaching the message of the cross. That's what Paul is honing in on. That's what Paul is addressing here. That I didn't want anything to get in the way, as he says in, in verse um, 17, I didn't want anything to take away from the effect of the cross and the power of the cross. But see, to the world, that seems like foolishness. Notice what Paul goes on to say here. In verse 22, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews that's a stumbling block and to the Greeks it's utter foolishness Paul says we're going to preach the cross but here's the thing is that to many in the world that just comes across as foolish but like Paul says at the end of verse 21 it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe this is the way that people are going to come in to know the Lord now Jews, as Paul says there in verse 22, they, they were always requesting a sign. They wanted to, to see Jesus validate who he was, right? Even though that didn't really matter because they saw sign after sign, but they continued to harden their heart. But we get the idea of this Matthew 12, verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And then in Matthew 16, 1, another instance, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. So oftentimes they're just trying to trap Jesus, test him in these things. They seek after a sign. Whereas the Greeks, as Paul says, 
They just wanted something logical, some great majestic wisdom that would just make sense to them, that would just make them, it kind of tickle their intellect and go, oh, okay, yeah, that really registers with us. We, we understand that now. But to the Jews seeking a sign, to the Greeks that are seeking after wisdom, Paul seemed to give them neither, but he gives them something better. He says, hey guys, we didn't come with powerful signs. We didn't come with some human wisdom. We simply preached Christ crucified. He gave them the wisdom of God. He gave them the gospel. He presented to them a Jesus, a savior that was willing to sacrifice himself on a cross to save them, to do something for them that they could not do for themselves. Now to the Jews, this whole message was a stumbling block, as Paul says. How so? Well, the Jews were awaiting their Messiah. They, were, they knew that God promised them uh, a, a son, a savior, the, the anointed promised one. They were awaiting that, but they saw this Messiah coming as one that would be this political deliverer. He would come onto the scene and he would just overthrow Roman bondage and oppression and he would lead Israel into glory days once again. That's what they were all waiting for. So when Jesus comes onto the scene and not just doesn't free them immediately from Roman bondage, but ends up dying a Roman death, they're all going, this doesn't compute, this doesn't add up, this doesn't make sense. It was a stumbling block to them. That word stumbling block is the Greek word scandalon, where we of course get our word scandalous. Now that word scandalon can, you know, infer a trap, a snare, any impediment placed in the way that it causes one to stumble or fall. Now applied to Jesus Christ, whose person and career were so contrary to the expectations of the Jews concerning the Messiah, I just laid out. They rejected him and by their obstinacy made shipwreck of their salvation. This became something about the very cross became this thing that tripped them up because they go, this doesn't add up, this doesn't make sense, this doesn't seem like the Messiah that we're expecting. In fact, you know, they had their scriptures in Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 that said, Cursed is anyone who's hung upon a tree. And now they've got this one that is the perceived Messiah who is hanging on a tree of the cross. And they're going, doesn't that just prove that this is not the Messiah? Rather, this is one that's cursed of God? It was a stumbling block to them. Now the Greeks, again, they were all about wisdom. But in their minds, there was nothing wise about a God dying, especially dying the death of a, a so-called criminal. They're all looking at this going, you guys are weird. <laughs> Worshiping a God that came and actually died? Because in Greek mythology, they've got their great gods that are mighty and powerful. They come down from heaven. They're to be feared. They're, they're mighty strong. They're, they're invincible. And now they're hearing about this son of God that was taken by men and killed, executed? So the Greeks are going, there doesn't seem to be anything wise about that. This is bizarre. This is strange. They didn't see how this could add up. But again, the Greeks, now Paul used the term Greeks and Gentiles interchangeably often. And this just referred to anybody that wasn't a Jew. In other words, they did not have the, the foundation of scriptures. They don't have these things. They were walking around as very kind of carnal or naturally minded. And Paul would say, and in fact, if you want to just turn over a page or two to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, 
Paul would write in verse 14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So these Greeks are walking around with natural thinking. They want to see wisdom in the world. They're looking at what God's doing and thinking, this doesn't seem to be very wise at all. But again, they're naturally minded. They're spiritually discerned. That was the case with these Greeks that Paul was addressing. And yet, as much as the simplicity and foolishness of the message of the cross was preached, some were open to hear it and receive it. To them, they saw the reality of the power of Jesus. Paul writes in verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. In other words, Paul says, nobody's excluded from receiving this truth. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Hey, if you'd like to mark your Bibles and underline, here's some great verses to underline. I love that right there. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So Paul says, regardless of your background, your learning, your, your education, your understanding, you all have the opportunity to receive these things of God. Those that are willing to yield themselves to these glorious truths, they begin to see now the great glories of God. They begin to see that what Christ accomplished on the cross was actually revealing the very power of God and the very wisdom of God. Because again, what might be considered the foolishness of God is still greater than all the wisdom of man put together. And the weakness of God is still stronger than all the strength in this known world combined together. God is still greater. God is still greater. You know, it, it must be a lot of fun to be God. Have you ever thought about that? I'm sure a lot of you have dreamed about being God for a day or something, what you do. I mean, he just must have so much fun because, again, his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, as Isaiah writes in chapter 55. And so, you know, when there's something to be done, I can just see God looking to do those things in the most obscure, illogical, inconceivable ways just to cause us to go, man, I did not see that coming. I did not see, God, how you were going to work out your good, perfect purposes through that because it seemed like it was coming to a dead end there. It did not seem like you were going to work that out. I mean, here we are in our church and we're, we're praying, Lord, we need a new building. We need to get into a new space. We need to provide here. We need more room. Yep, God's gone. I'm on it. I'm on it. So what I'm going to do to start with is I'm going to put some fences up around the parking lot. <laughs> I'm going to block off all your parking so that not only are you squeezed out in the building, you'll be squeezed out in parking here. I got all covered and we're all going, what? How in the world do you got it covered by taking a park? And, and yet we just see that God does things in ways that the world might look at and go, that's foolishness. But what might seem like the foolishness of God is yet still wiser. And I know that when we see these things happening, I don't have to get worried or bothered. I don't have to get frustrated. Now in my flesh, I have to battle that. I get, I'm like, I want to tear those things down, but I, give, I just give it over to the Lord. But I don't have to get worried or frustrated because I know it's so obvious, God, that, that you're at work and you're going to lead through this and you're going to do something so that when I see fences come up, I don't have to freak out and go, God, did you know that there's fences going up now? Are you aware of this? It's like, yeah, I know. I'm doing it. I'm at work. 
But that, that, that seems foolish. Yeah, you just wait. Just wait what he's going to do. See, all through God's word, God's worked in these ways, hasn't he? Where we've seen time and time again, God do things that just blows the lid off of what our human reasoning and wisdom would be. Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Out of you are going to come many people in the very, the very line of the Messiah. So Abraham, get ready. Abraham and Sarah are like, awesome. Can't wait. Tick. Tick, tick, time's going. And they're like, hey God, I don't, you know, I'm not sure if you're aware, but uh, I'm not getting any younger. Sarah certainly, look at her. She's not getting any younger. God, we, we need to take some action here. And they're seeing the promises of God, but they're not seeing it in info. They're not seeing God actually working things out. We gotta, we gotta make something happen. And they do, and they make a mess of things. God waits till Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old before he brings them their first child. Now we know in Bible times, people lived a little bit longer, but you gotta say, even here in Abraham's day, this is a crazy miracle that God is doing in bringing a child from a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man. See, he brings us oftentimes to the end of ourselves because it brings us to the beginning of God, right? It brings us to the point where we now get to see this goes beyond our human wisdom because now we can't get in the way and go, we can make this work. We can do something out of this. It, it brings us to the point where God says, it's gonna be so clearly evident that it's me at work. And I'm gonna work in ways that might seem foolish in the world's eyes, but it's actually gonna accomplish something so great that the world goes, I would never have done it that way. And it just reveals the wisdom of God, right? God's gonna bring, Egypt, or bring Israel into Egypt because he's gonna bring them out of the land of Canaan where they're gonna be defiled, they're gonna be polluted. He goes, I need you to grow as a nation now where you're gonna be protected from all those things. I'm gonna bring you into Egypt where the Egyptians will want nothing to do with you. All right, I'm gonna bring Joseph in. But he doesn't just bring Joseph and go, okay, I'm gonna elevate Joseph to be this great guy. He says, Joseph, you're gonna be hated by your brothers. You're gonna be betrayed by them, sold into slavery. You're gonna end up in Egypt. You're gonna end up in Potiphar's house. And, and his wife is gonna falsely accuse you of doing something wrong. You're gonna be put in prison. You're gonna be forgotten in prison. And Joseph, if Joseph was told that plan, Joseph would have been running the opposite way. Lord, that's, that's dumb. How, how do you do anything good out of that? That's gonna... That's gonna ruin my reputation, Lord. But the Lord eventually delivers him out of prison to illuminate and interpret this dream of Pharaoh to which God eventually brings Joseph into second command in at that time, the world empire of the day. Joseph now is in second in command. God doesn't just bring his people out of Canaan into Egypt. He brings a man into a position of power and prominence to bring favor to the Israelites as they come in. God just works in such incredible ways that seem odd and foolish and strange to us. But yet, in what seems like weakness, actually reveals his strength. Hey, people, we're gonna... We're gonna move into the promised land now. It's time for you to take over this land that I'm giving you. First up is Jericho. So what I need you guys to do, I need you to come in and just, you know, for six days, just take a loop around the city. Okay, and then what? 
Oh, nothing. Actually, then on the seventh day, I want you to walk seven times around the city. And after the seventh time walk around the city, I want your priests to blow their trumpets and then all of you to shout. Okay. Um, and then, God, I'm assuming, then we yell attack and we take the city. We tear down the walls. We just go for it. No, no. Just, just blow the trumpets and shout. Lord, what? Like, we're going to look like morons here. They're going to be looking down on us from the city walls going, you guys are so odd. What is the matter with you? This is just, just blow the trumpets to make a shout. And they do it. And the walls come down. I mean, you just look at that. I mean, how many of you would have been right there on the front lines going, yeah, this is going to be awesome. It's going to be exciting. We'd all be going, I don't know what, what God is thinking, but I hope there's a plan B here, right? <laughs> this seems weird. And yet God just does wonderful work in that. Hey, Gideon, uh, we've got the Midianites that are coming against you. It's not good. We need to take them down. So what I need you to do, Gideon, I need you to gather your army and come up against the Midianites. There's 120,000 of them. There's 30,000 of you. And there's too many. And Gideon's are going, yeah, Lord, what are you going to do? You got to pare down those Midianites. No, no, there's, there's too many of you. Lord, what are you? No, no, no. God, I don't know if we need to do a lesson on math here, but we're outnumbered four to one. The Midianites outnumbers four to one, and you're telling me that there's too many of us? Yeah, yeah, too many of you need to send some home. So Gideon has to send some home. And now they're down 14 to one. And Gideon's going, God, I don't know how this is going to work. This, this doesn't look good. And God's going, yeah, you're right. It doesn't look good. There's still too many of you. Wait, no, no, God, did you hear me? 14 to one. Those are like insurmountable odds. We're going in to our death. God says, no, to me, I need you to send some more home. Some more go home. Now the odds are down 450 to one. How many of you are ready to go into battle with those kinds of odds? <laughs> and yet this is exactly what God does. Gideon, I need you to go and I'm going to be with you. And, and he leads him into victory with 450 to one odds. Do you know when you have the Lord on your side, if it's you and the Lord, you are in the majority God, God just does such incredible, wonderful things that go beyond all human wisdom and reasoning. What seems like foolishness, what seems like weakness, yet is still greater, greater than the world's wisdom, greater than the world's strength. God is able to accomplish all. God loves to do things that make it abundantly clear that he's the one doing it. Nobody can take credit for those things. Now, the world may mock his tactics, but they will find out that he always comes up on top. Amen. And it's that way with our salvation, my friends. Look at what, when we look at now the reason for godly wisdom in verse 26, Paul goes on to say, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. So Paul has the Corinthian church now do a little self-examining. He's saying, check all this out for yourselves. Is anyone among you here because your credentials dictated that? Are you here because you were so wise, so mighty, so wonderful that you just found the answers to life and now here you are? No. 
Remember our context last week, people were aligning with different leaders and were glorying in them. They were putting them up on that pedestal. Pryor says in his commentary, by using such methods, God is overthrowing one of the false standards of the world. Example, the notion that those who matter to him are the wise, the well-bred, the articulate, the gifted, the wealthy, the wielders of power and influence. Such standards die very hard, even in the Christian church. They were a powerful force at Corinth. They stifle the glory of God today. James had a stinging rebuke for Christians adopting such standards in his day by giving special treatment to influential people in church gatherings. James had to call them out there in the church. And it's the same for us today that we don't gravitate to or elevate human wisdom might, nobility. Now, keep in mind, it, it doesn't say that any wise are called or any noble or any mighty. It says not many. See, there are some wonderful, wise and mighty people that are servants of God. Many people who are very gifted intellectually. I'm not one of them, let me tell you. Not by a long shot, but that's besides the point. The point is that God still saved and used people who are mighty and wise and people born into wealth, but it's not these things that separated them for God. Their salvation is still a matter of what Christ did on the cross for them, where the ultimate power and wisdom of God lay. Queen Elizabeth was asked, or the Queen of England was once asked, how she was converted to Christ. She replied, by an M. By an M. When asked what she meant, she said, I'm thankful God said not many noble rather than not any noble. She knew that it wasn't her nobility that brought her to a right standing with God. It was her need for Jesus. See, God loves to choose the foolish things to put to shame the wise. It's not the way the world does it. Like I said, the world gravitates to those that seem wealthy, prestigious, those that seem well-educated, all those that people lift up, the, the good-looking, the ones that are, 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 are strong and mighty. Whereas God tends to use short, stocky, balding people oftentimes more than the, what the, the world looks at. They go, we dismiss that, but God says, that those are the ones I'm going to use. Why? Because then you realize that there's nothing in them. The power lies within God. It's God that's at work then. It's God the, that, that gets all the glory through it. I'm thankful for that. It's why I'm up here, because God doesn't choose the, the wise and the strong. He chooses the foolish things. Because then you go, well, you know, Brent, that's really awesome. We know that, man, you did not do any of that in and of yourself. That's got to be of God. And that's exactly right. I can do nothing. It's only through the Lord. When anything good happens through people that God chooses to use, when the good happens, it becomes so clearly evident that it was just simply a work of God. No one else can boast in it. We can only glory in the Lord. Paul goes on to say in verse 28, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. See, we are all proof positive of God's way of working. Right? I mean, he brings his son into the world, born in a stable, born in humble means. He grows up in relative obscurity and you're going that doesn't seem logical 
It doesn't seem right for the Son of God to come in the world that way, but it's through those foolish things that he uses by which the wise now are confounded. He brings to nothing the things that we've often put a lot of emphasis, strength in, or, or hope in. He brings to nothing those things. Why does God do those things that seem so contrary to what we would do or the world would do? Here's why, verse 29. That no flesh should glory in his presence. See, when we see the people that God uses to fulfill his purposes and the way he works to fulfill his purposes, nobody can take the credit for it. God must get the glory. If God allowed people to figure out a plan of salvation, a way to come to God, to be right with God in and of themselves, well, then they would be filled, they'd be walking around with huge heads full of pride, patting themselves on the back. Look at how great we are. Look at how wise we are. In fact, that, that's what was happening in the early church with the first kind of heresy that began to attack the church was Gnosticism. This idea that, oh, we can reach God through our own, you know, secret knowledge and wisdom. It was that very thing that became the first heresy within the church. That's not the way that God's ever operated or worked. He works in ways where we're just like, duh, it's got to be clearly of God because we've got nothing to offer. It's got to be of the Lord so that he gets all the glory for it. But look at this. It doesn't mean that we're just walking around, duh, we get nothing. We're walking in this denseness, this fog. We don't have any wisdom. Not, no, look at what Paul says here in verse 30. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. See, don't think that you're missing out on wisdom. Don't think that God has kept you in the dark. In Christ, we experience true wisdom, wisdom from God. We gain everything in Christ. Not only do we receive the wisdom, the true wisdom of God, but we gain righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. We get so much more in the Lord. Righteousness. Again, that's, that's through the cross of Jesus that, where he came and sacrificed himself so we could be forgiven. He took all of our sin upon himself and he exchanged it for all of his righteousness. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, 20, that he made him who knew no sin and be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We've gained righteousness. We, we have a right standing with God now because of Christ. God's not saying, you gotta get your act together. You guys are weak. You guys are foolish. He's not saying that. He says, you need to come to Christ and then you have right standing with me because of what Christ did for you. We gain righteousness. We gain sanctification where the Lord continues to work in us. He doesn't just save us put us aside, he saves us and continues to work in us. He who's begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. So that's that sanctification process, making us more like him, being conformed in the image of his son. Being holy as he is holy, sanctification, being set apart to him. He's continuing to work in us and, and walk with us. And then redemption, it says. Redemption is, again, that price that was paid for our salvation, for the forgiveness of sin. But one day, we're gonna see and experience that redemption in full. We're gonna see as we are caught up to the Lord to be with him for all of eternity, we're gonna be redeemed fully now in and through the Lord. Praise God for what we've done. You see, 
There's no worldly wisdom. There's nothing in the world that can offer those things that we now gain in and through Christ. We have so much more given to us than anything we could have ever received in and from the world. The only path to salvation, life, and blessing is found in Jesus. If you're gonna glory or boast in something, then glory or boast in the Lord. Because man is an unfit person to glory in, as the church in Corinth was doing. Anything that you've accomplished is simply because God's given you the grace to do it and to do it for his glory. So continue to glory and boast in him. Paul ends with a great passage from Jeremiah chapter nine. It's a great way just to end our message today. Sums it up for us here. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. Glory in the fact that you simply know the Lord, that you understand him. When you, when you know him, and again, we never fully understand him, but we put our faith in him. We trust him that when we see things happening that seem like foolishness, illogical, unreasonable, we go, oh God, I can't wait to see what you're gonna do out of this. I can't wait how, how you're gonna demonstrate your power and your might and your wisdom in this. God, it is exciting to serve you. I wanna know you more. I wanna live by faith in you. I wanna trust you in all these things. Let us keep glorying in the Lord, glorying in the fact that we know him, we trust him, and he is enough in all these things that we encounter in life. Praise the Lord for what he's done. Worship team, would you come up? And would you stand with me as we just take some time to meditate on these things that we've looked at today in God's word? Let's pray that the Lord just plants these truths deep in our heart. So we just take some time and worship him and wait on him. Lord, we thank you, God, for this time we've had to be in your word and to learn of you. And God, we're, we're so amazed at the way that you work so wonderfully in ways that oftentimes the world will think is crazy, weird, foolish, and yet, we are those that have seen how it's in the foolishness of God, the so-called foolishness of God, that you reveal just the greatness of your wisdom. And in, in the, the apparent so-called weakness of God, you demonstrate the amazing might and strength of God that's at work. That goes beyond anything we will ever encounter in this world. So may we look to you by faith and trust in all of our problems, in all of our roadblocks, Lord, may we see, I don't need to fear, I don't need to worry, because you're at work. You're gonna do it all for your glory. So Lord, may we continue to glory in you. Glory in the fact that we know you, that we have a dependable God to lean on. So thank you for this time. Amen.